may be seated. Well, today, our second reading, the epistle reading, serves as a sort of follow-up to last week's reading from Revelation chapter 7. You're seeing, in a sense, the same group, but from a different perspective and the end of all things. We're seeing is the consummation of all of human history. This is where human history has been heading ever since the very beginning. And that works out well for us because we just got finished studying the Revelation, right? We're still examining the works of St. John in our Bible study. And for so long, this particular book, the Revelation, has been held out as something scary or confusing or something to be avoided. I don't think it's any of these things. In fact, it is a book about comfort. Comfort based on the restoration of all things, about the restoration of the entire creation as a result of Christ's resurrection victory. And also then the assurance that despite how dark things often seem, everything is going to be okay. It serves as a sneak peek at the end of all things, and as it so happens, Jesus wins, in case you didn't know that already. It's fitting to focus on these texts during the season of Easter, because it is here that we see the rubber meet the road, where the resurrection of Jesus comes to bear on the entirety of human history. The end of all suffering and all evil, the restoration of God's good creation as he intended it. In the Revelation, we see that the creation is restored. Restored to a cosmos, but without sin. In fact, if you take sin out of the Bible, right, where no sin exists, you're left with a little pamphlet. Genesis 1 and 2, Revelation 21 and 22. It would be very, very short. Therefore, it's easy to conclude that the purpose of the Bible is to show God's purpose, God's solution to abolish sin once and for all through the incarnation, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So the question arises then, what is Revelation all about? More specifically, why is it called Revelation? What is being revealed therein? Well, look at the very beginning, chapter 1, verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things which must soon take place. Or to put it more literally, the revelatory unveiling of Jesus Christ. The revelation to St. John is a revelation, a revealing of Jesus Christ. It's a book that is entirely about him. About the Lamb of God who was slain and executed and raised. The unseen things of Jesus are revealed in order that his servants would see the things which must soon take place. So let me put this in a human way. What was seen with human eyes was the empty tomb of Jesus. Jesus risen from the dead. Jesus on the shore with them. I'm going to try to get this thing going. What this means, the things that are not seen or are seen here is that John is granted a vision of how this all turns out. Jesus didn't just rise from the dead as a miracle. He rose from the dead to restore all of his creation. This is the end 
of John's visions in the book of Revelation. He has seen God's throne in heaven and the angels, the saints, the victorious lamb. He's seen the seven seals, the seven trumpets, the seven censers, and all of that have been poured out upon the earth. He has seen the demonic hosts gathered in the depths of hell and angelic warriors gathered in heaven. He has seen Armageddon, the second coming of Christ, the final resurrection and the judgment of the entire human race. The book of life has been opened, and now for just a moment, God gives John one last vision. The city of God, descending from heaven, dressed like a bride adorned for her bridegroom. At this point, John's visions cease, and we find him with his face buried in the earth, bowing in worship. And when he finally does speak, all he can say is, come. Come, Lord Jesus, come. That's how this vision affects its very first witness, John. And that's the cry of the church throughout the ages. This vision certainly turns our eyes toward the future and makes us cry out for the Christ to come. But it should also serve as a reminder of who we already are in God's sight. Who you are. Corporately together, the church is the bride of Jesus, his glorious bride, prepared and adorned for the bridegroom, presented without blemish or spot or wrinkle. We, as Christians who live in the light of the risen Jesus, are torn. We're always torn, maybe even a little homesick, between the now and the not yet. In John's language from his first epistle, he says, Beloved, we are God's children now, but what we will be has not yet appeared. In the seminary, the fancy word that we use for this is inaugurated eschatology. It's a fancy way of saying now, but not yet. It's here now, but not in its fullness as of yet. In our words, we're caught between the now and the not yet. I think in many ways there could be a danger between living only for today, on the one hand, and also treating life like a waiting room for eternity, on the other hand. We are God's children now. That's a really good thing. There's nothing in all of creation that can change that fact. You are God's beloved child right here and now, and you will be forever. Jesus says, no one can snatch them out of my hand. And this has profound implications for the way that we live each and every day. The way that we deal with our family, with our friends, with our neighbors. Being God's child is, as they say, nothing to sneeze at. What we do in this life represents God to the rest of the world around us. If we live lives of selfishness, rudeness, arrogance, or indifference... It then reflects back on God to the people around us. In other words, we drag God's name through the mud because God's name has been placed on each and every one of us. When you're visibly associated with God's holy church, everything that you do is a reflection on your faith and upon the object of your faith, Jesus Christ. This could be a terrifying thought if you let it remain in that. But there's a positive side also. We serve God 
by serving our neighbor. And the kindness that we show to our children, our spouse, our friends, our family, our neighbors, co-workers, even random people in traffic, also reflects on the kindness and mercy of our God. It's like it says so simply in the Catechism, how is God's name kept holy? God's name is kept holy when the word of God is taught in its truth and purity, and then we as the children of God also lead holy lives according to it. Help us to do this, dear Father in heaven. But anyone who teaches or lives contrary to God's word profanes the name of God among us. Protect us from this heavenly Father. This life, this moment right here and now is not a waiting room for eternity. Because every moment is filled with one opportunity after another to serve as God's instruments of blessing to the entire creation around us. We are God's children now, but what we will be has not yet appeared. And what will be, what we are already in God's eyes, is exactly what John sees and writes in our vision from Revelation this morning. Here comes the bride, the new Jerusalem, adorned as a bride for her husband. The imagery here, speaking of the church as the bride of Christ, is nothing new. Isaiah does this 600 years earlier. The imagery also exists in the prophet Ezekiel and Hosea as well. This is what John sees. Now, it's hard to imagine a city dressed up in a wedding dress, so obviously this is figurative language. It's not a geographical city, not the Jerusalem that existed in John's day revamped, or the Jerusalem of today renovated, but something coming directly out of heaven, designed by God, decked out for the most joyous occasion in human history. In fact, the way that this works is that all the joy, all the goodness of every single marriage that every human couple has ever celebrated is a pale glimmer of what this occasion is like. This is the ultimate coming together of God's residence and man's all at once. The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be any mourning or crying or pain anymore, for all these former things have passed away. Now, are you familiar with the, the TV show Extreme Makeover Home Edition? You remember that? It hasn't... I think they're rebooting it, but it hasn't been on for a few years. In that show, a family in some unique, difficult situation would be given a home makeover, a remodel and renovation to more adequately meet the family's needs. At the end of the show, when it was time to reveal what had been done to improve their house, a large bus was parked in front to block it from their view. And finally, the host would proclaim, move that bus, and the bus would drive away, and they'd have a first glimpse of their spruced-up house, a house that most likely they couldn't afford the property taxes on when his bill came due. <laughs> but John's vision here might be something along the lines of extreme makeover church edition, because our lives today often resemble the sad, pitiful before picture, right? 
The church, especially while John was receiving the revelation, was under intense persecution. This vision was granted to comfort Christians in the midst of their extreme suffering. While our before picture might not be nearly as miserable as the vast majority of our Christian brothers and sisters around the world, the difference between what we see today and what will be revealed by God someday, the difference is staggering. The bride is revealed and she looks glorious. What a stark contrast. No longer does she resemble the wife of whoredom depicted in the prophet Hosea or Ezekiel 16, but she's now presented without spot or blemish or wrinkle. Lou Bryan says in his commentary, Here in Revelation 21, John sees the end result of the redemption of the bride of God, now spoken of as the bride of Christ. In all her godly beauty, as portrayed by the holy city Jerusalem, she will forever remain in God's presence. This is getting to the good stuff. You remember how we talked about the Bible with everything with sin removed? This was God's intention all along. In the beginning, God dwelled with his people. He walked with Adam and Eve in the garden. God was there, present in our creation, up until our sin separated us from him. In biblical language, the sea is often portrayed as wildness and chaos that separates humanity from God. The sea was something to be feared because it was something only controllable by God. It explains why the disciples were terrified when Jesus walked on the sea and when he calmed the storm. Peter knew he was stuck in the boat with Jesus and he couldn't get away from him. So he says, get away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. Only God does these sorts of things. And so here in John's vision of the new creation, there's no more sea. No more chaos. Nothing separating us from the presence of God because of mankind's sin. It's not that there won't be bodies of water anymore because there is a river flowing through this city. Brighton continues, The sea in its storm-tossed boiling rage and as the symbolical domain of the primeval serpent, the sea will no longer be present. In parallel terms, St. Paul said it like this in Romans, saying that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is how we see it play out in the end of all things. Because, what, because of what the Lamb has accomplished, the dwelling place of God is now when once again, finally and eternally be with man. A loud voice here cries out, Hey, behold, look here, in other words. The dwelling place of God is with man. And this dwelling of God with man, it has amazing benefits associated with it. The presence of God with his people necessarily means the absence of sorrow. The absence of bad in any way. There's no more death. There's no more pain. Nothing. Because all of these things are replaced with the presence of God, which is all things good. It is almost impossible for us in this day and age to imagine our life without sorrow, without death, without mourning or crying or pain. Even more difficult to imagine what it would be like living face to face with our God. The positive realities 
of our eternal existence are entirely incomprehensible to us. So John is granted these words from the throne to describe what will not be in the new creation. And something even more incredible happens after this. The Father speaks. He is called the one sitting on the throne. He says, Behold, I make all things new. This is God's recreative word. It's nearly a direct quote from Isaiah 43, verse 19. Behold, I make new things. It is the Father who directly commands John to write. So far, John's ministry has been spoken aloud, face to face, in person. But the vision, the message that he's been granted from God, transcends John and his parish and is for all Christians of all time. The revelation... The revelatory unveiling of Jesus Christ is meant for the whole church for all time. The Father, your heavenly Father, who is seated on the throne, declares, It has happened. It's here. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers, in other words, the one who has faith in Jesus. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my child, my son. This is what it means to be the bride, the beloved of God, bound to God for all eternity, inseparable from his love, his blessing, his mercy. Everything that God has ever done has been in love for you. God has made you the bride of Christ. It's hard for men to understand this sometimes, but look at it from this perspective. Nothing that you do could ever make you into a bride, or anyone for that matter. In fact, you can only be a bride because someone loves you. Everything he's ever done has been done in his love for you. His life, his death, his resurrection, all of it for you. You stand here in this righteousness of Christ, beautiful in his baptism, glorious in his grace, and he promises to come finally and reveal this fact to the whole wide world. Until that time, he's given you this little vision. It's there so that you will always remember who you are, the bride of Christ, God's own creation. What we see now, what we see lies ahead, shapes how we live now. Now, in this day and age, you may not see this bride come down from heaven in her glory in your own lifetime. That's okay. Maybe you will. Hopefully you will. The Lord knows that there are so many of us who long for the day when death will be no more. When tears will be wiped away from all our faces. When there will be no more sorrow or mourning or pain. But until we reach that glorious day, the Lord has granted us this vision of who we are. What he has done for you through the triumph of the Lamb of God, crucified and exalted and raised for you. Amen. <laughs>